Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. I am coming to you from the Pineapple Point Guest House in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's a beautiful gay guest house, and uh, I've been hanging by the pool, I've been hot tubbing, I've been continental breakfasting, and um, it's fabulous here. But um, the reason I'm in Florida is um, one of the cruise ships that I wrote a show on, The Regal Princess is being inaugurated this weekend here. And uh, Princess was nice enough to invite me down to do a quick rehearsal with the, the cast and also just to enjoy all the christening festivities. And guess who is here to christen the ship and be the big guest? The original Love Boat cast. So they're all going to be here. Gavin, even Vicky, they're all here. And hopefully I'll get to meet them and rub shoulders with them. And um, other body parts, if they're into that, I'm not going to push. Um, also, it's not just the cast of the the regular Love Boat people, but a lot of celebrities that uh, were guest stars on the show. Um, I Adrian Zamed's name jumped out at me from the list, Lonnie Anderson. So um, I'm going to have a lot to say in the next installment. Uh, but first, let's get to this one. Um, my guests this week are director Randall Kleiser and producer Greg O'Connor, they are working together on the show The Penis Chronicles, which is currently playing at the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood. It's sort of the flip side of the vagina monologues, I guess it might be fair to say, but it's its own original thing. And uh, it's Randall Kleiser's first time directing for the stage after making films like Grease and The Blue Lagoon and It's My Party. And so it was really, really fun to talk to him and to Greg. But before I get them, get to them a little housekeeping, um, go to DennisAnyone.net and you can do all kinds of stuff associated with the show. And what I really need folks to do if they haven't already done it is to take my audience poll. I know you're probably tired of hearing about it, but I'm two-thirds of the way there to how many polls-taking people that I need to be able to um, reach out to advertisers and hopefully get the show sponsored. So... Please take my poll at, uh, take my poll, damn it, take it, um, at DennisAnyone.net. You can also follow me on Twitter at Hensley Dennis. I'm trying to do a little more tweeting and so forth. Instagram is Dennis C. Hensley. Uh, if you like what you hear and you want to kick a little into the tip jar, you can do that at DennisAnyone.net. It makes a big difference. It helps me uh, pay for my hosting fees and other expenses. And um, if you want to sign up for my newsletter, you can do that there as well. Um, that's all the plugging I feel like doing. There may be other things, but you know what? I've got Love Boat on the brain. I've got Randall Kleiser on the brain and I'm in a beautiful place. So I'm going to, uh, get to the episode. I did this interview before I left Los Angeles and, uh, I hope you enjoy Randall Kleiser and Greg O'Connor. Hey there. I am, uh, in the Hollywood Hills right now in the beautiful home of director Randall Kleiser. His films are... Uh, numerous and uh, wonderful Grease, The Blue Lagoon, Summer Lovers, It's My Party, and many others. And uh, the occasion that I'm here for is you're directing your first play. That's right, at the Coast Playhouse, starting November 8th. It's called The Penis Chronicles. Right. And we're also joined by your producer, Greg. Tell me your last name again. Greg O'Connor. Greg O'Connor. Great to be here. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Um, I'm sorry I blew that. Um, Now, why now direct a first play? I haven't really found anything that I really liked until now, and this was written by Tom Ewell, who's the nephew of Tom Ewell, the actor, who was in 
Seven Year Itch with Marilyn Monroe. Right on. He used to work for me. He worked on two movies, White Fang and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Right. And he was my assistant. And he went off to become a surgical nurse in the East Coast. And then he sent me this play about maybe a year and a half ago. And I couldn't believe it. It was so well written. And and the characters were fantastic. And so uh, then it turned out that his producer was uh, Greg O'Connor, who actually we have something in common. We grew up on the same street in, in, in suburban Philadelphia on Meadowood Road. Meadowood Road. We didn't know each other back then. Well, actually, I was there much earlier than he was. But So we had this weird connection that he, he's best friends with Tom. Tom worked for me. He was producing the play, and the three of us got together to do it. It was meant to be. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's kind of on paper, just hearing a little about it, it sounds like the answer to the vagina monologues in a way, but what took so long for us to answer the vagina monologues? And it probably, maybe that's not an accurate description. Do you want to explain that? I think that the play is really about it's every man's journey. That's why the subtitle is Every Man's Journey. It's really every man's journey through their sexuality. It starts, you know, with a 16-year-old boy who hasn't reached puberty yet, all the way goes through all the years to a 67-year-old man who uh, has regrets having married the wrong woman, and he wants to go back to his youth and, and, and be you know, young again. And he's lost, he's felt feeling like he lost years. And so there's something for everyone. There's, there's all the agony. There's, there's the, the lives, the laments, the laughs, the, you know, the laughter. <laughs> and in of, between, and there's, there's in between. other, other characters like, uh, there's a drag queen who, who, uh, sent her little brother to summer camp and he died in a canoe accident. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's heavy stuff. There's a, um, a, a the young boy, uh, is using a penis pump because he hasn't matured, and someone told him that he could have a, a bigger dick if he did that. And right. So he's trying that; it's not working. And then there's um, there's an HIV positive guy who got it from a girl, strangely enough, and uh, he's a poet, and he sort of pontificates in sort of poetry. It's very interesting stuff. Then there's a male gigolo uh, who used to be a Wall Street. Um, uh, Banker, or Wall Street. What he uh, was in a he was a partner at a firm on Wall yeah. Street, and he like basically like realized that whole life was a lie. So he went out and became a, a, a prostitute, and to really re- reconnect with people, because he felt like he had lost his soul in that world. Right on. And so he has, has so much soul being a gigolo, right? <laughs> do the characters interact, or do they sort of do their own thing? They don't interact, but they some are related. Like, I see. There's the father. Uh, the one man is the father of two of the other characters, and. And uh, the, one of the boys looks up to another character he mentions, and then we see him. So, so there's little threads between them all that are very interesting, and you have to sort of like figure it out as you listen. I like that. Yeah. Is there one that you relate to the most? The Gigolo. No. <laughs> no I, I, I probably relate most to the old guy because I'm getting old now. And it's... Uh, He's talking about uh, what it's like to, to, to start creaking, you know? You do when you get older. You start, you can't run the way you used to. I used to be able to run all over the place, and now I have a hip replacement, and so I can't. It's a drag getting old. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm feeling that now with different things, and it's like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, on my way in, I met one of your actors, and yes. you were outfitting him with something that will help make his character more That's effective. Right. Uh, Ozzy Rodriguez is playing the character of Artemis, who is a, a, a guy who was a high school 
star of the high school football team, and then he accidentally killed his girlfriend in an auto wreck and started to eat and eat and eat and became very, very heavy and fat. And so Ozzy, we were outfitting with a fat suit, and we were just rehearsing, and he it didn't have the right... He was walking around with, that, with this pad that looked... Like it didn't have any, any heft to it. It's like when people are in a movie, you could tell there's nothing in the That's suitcase. That's right, exactly. Right. So I got him this vest that has all this weight on it, and then he tried that, and I think that's going to make it really play. What has it been like adjusting to a stage versus film? Well, you know, I called my friend Arthur Allen Seidelman, who's a director. I've heard the name, yeah. He's done movies and television. I said, what is the most important thing for me to know about going from film to stage? And he said, well, you use... The stage, uh, you use lighting as you do a camera, like a close-up is, he was talking about where you stand. If you come downstage, that's like a close-up. And if you go upstage, it's a master shot. And, and, and if you want to really focus in, you, you use lighting. And so he's explaining a lot of the things to me that are, I guess, things I'd figure out eventually. But it's great to have those basics. Sure. What about with the actors? Um, I think it's just uh, a matter of making sure that they can reach the back row. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, movie actors, you know, they, they're used to talking like this and they, you know, especially Clint Eastwood type stuff. And they, right. They, all the young actors just whisper like that. And they have to project to the back row now. What was it like doing the casting? Where did you find your actors? We went to... We went to Breakdown Services LA Casting. Sure. We referrals from friends. And it was a process. We did three rounds. Right on. And uh, we kind of found an amazing cast. Right. One of the things that I wanted to try was to have a female play the 15-year-old boy, who's, so that the voice wasn't changed. Right. We, are, 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 we have a very good guy playing that. Kyle Eastman is playing the, re- the lead role, but we we're looking for an understudy. We found this great girl. She's a drag king. Right on. And she came in and blew us away with her acting. She just, yeah. She's just what I was imagining, you know, because here's this girl who looks like a guy and has a little voice like that, you know, hasn't changed, and she's real butch and fun and, and it's good comedy. So I think, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe opening the show with that character now. Yeah. Maybe. Do you like casting? Because in my limited experience directing a, shoot, a few short films, I love the idea of so somebody comes in, you've never heard of them, you don't know them, and you sort of want them to be the guy or be mm-hmm. the character. Mm-hmm. And there's something really exciting about that discovery process. On the other side, there's the, the, the downside is when they walk through the door and they have a flashing light on their head that says, all wrong. Dink, a dink, a dink. And you have to go through the whole thing. Oh, well, nice to meet right, you. Right, and it's <laughs> nothing they did. It's just... No. It's, but you know that you're wasting your time. Right. And you, you've got to cast real soon and... Uh, the good thing was we had videos. Uh, we started with video submissions. That's right. right saved on. a lot of time. And the thing is, it it's also benefits the actor because you can go back. Sometimes you don't remember what somebody did, and we can go, there's so many people you go through. And we were able to go back and go, oh, yeah, I remember what he did. And we can look through all the videos and see all the different beats and how different people played it. And it was, was very helpful. And the other thing that's interesting is that in the past, you used to bring in actors and you'd have a camera and the casting thing, and, they'd, and, you'd, and you'd set it up and film and tape them. Now, you send the, the, the sides out online, they do it on themselves with their iPhones and send it to us. I mean, it's so different than it used to be. And, and I think it's great because the actors really have a chance to do it as many times as they want, get it the way they like it, and then send it to you. So it's not like they're, in a, they're under pressure and you know, it's the first time they're reading it and they make a mistake and you know, they can control it a little bit. Right. It, it's sort of everybody wins. 
kind yeah, of situation. I think so, yeah. Now, uh, this show is showing at the Coast Playhouse on Santa Monica Boulevard. There, yeah. You've got Merrick's nearby. You've got Basics. I like to imagine your crowd sort of spilling out and then discussing their own penises over dinner. I hope so. Their own, their own thoughts and things like that. And up the street is WeHo Bistro, which is, have you ever been there? Yes, it's really young. I love that. They, yeah. They, they are, are supporting us, too. They, they, those guys are great. Jerry and Jeff who run that uh, I go there all the time. We both go there all the yeah. time. Love it, love it. Yeah. And basic, you, you're right, basics and, and merics. Would you like to direct more theater after this? Are you sort of Actually, di- getting bitten by the bug? I, You know what? I, uh, I've i written a play version of It's My Party. That, <gasps> that would be incredible. Yeah. That, this is sort of a, to break me in. And if yeah. it works, then I'll probably do it. If it if it doesn't, then maybe I'll go hide under a rock. <laughs> you got to do it, though, right? Yeah. Do you ever? Do, how do you deal with that putting yourself out there thing? It seems like it yeah. never goes away, right? It's right. you're always vulnerable around it. Ah, did you see the movie Birdman? I did. I loved it. Didn't you love? I loved that it. Critic, when you went to that critic, yeah. and told her off. That, that's what I. I always imagine every time you start anything, you think about those critics and how you want to just fucking punch them in the head, you know, when they say mean things, because they always do. And there's always somebody out there with a, their talons out. So it's hard to uh, to just let that bounce off you. Yeah. Do you read them? Do you read reviews? Do you... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> I hope you do that. And now that movie came you out in. I do what? Ripped her eyes uh, no, no. Yes, that. And I hope that <laughs> It's My Party. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, makes it to the stage. That could be really fun. Yeah. It would be amazing. Yeah. Now that movie came out what year? 96. 96. Mm-hmm. And you and I, I first met you through my friend Felix Pyre. Right. Uh, who's a good friend of mine who was in the movie. And I met him because I went to see that movie at the Beverly Center when there were still cinemas in the Beverly Center. Mm -hmm. And I remember coming out, and he had seen it there as well. He happened to be there. Mm -hmm. And I remember meeting him in the elevator and then seeing him later at the gym. And he's always spoken so fondly of you because you've really sort of mentored him. And it it seems like you like helping young people find their way. That seems like something you do a lot, just from my limited observation. Yeah, I've done a lot of teaching and lecturing and stuff, but Felix is so talented. He has that one-man show. He's had a couple of them, right? Yeah. I've seen all of them, and uh, he's like a John Leguizamo type guy who has all the, talks about his family and does impressions, and he's he's really, really talented. I'd love to find more things for him, and I I think his shows are great. Yeah. Now, It's My Party, that was very personal for you, yeah. writing and directing that. Yeah. And I find that when you do something that's super personal, it's, it's painful to do, but it's like, uh, it's like therapy on a grand scale. You know, it's like, it makes you, oh, there goes my phone. <laughs> it, um, it's like very expensive fa- therapy. Right. And what, and once, once it came out and people were reacting to it, and the story of it again is, it's about, uh, a man, it's, it took place during the, um, the period of time in the, in the AIDS crisis where AIDS was a death sentence. There was no pills, nothing. If you got it, you died and often in terrible ways. And so many of our friends were dropping dead and, and a few people, including my friend, Harry Stein decided to take control of it and not have it control him. And so he gave a great big party when he had this, he had a, a brain lesion that would that would make him into a vegetable in just a few days. It was a very fast-moving thing. So he had a big party, said goodbye to all his friends, and at the end of the party, he took pills and, and killed himself. So it's not really a... I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I took it to Disney 
because they owe me. <laughs> <laughs> they took me. They, they owed me a movie. I, they said, if, Jeff Katzenberg said, if you do Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, I'll give you an adult movie to make. So I, wow. I did that, and then I took it's my party to him, and he said, well, this isn't what I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't do it. So you sort of did it independently. I did it. I, I luckily ran into John Kelly, who had just taken over United Artists. And right. I walked in with a book of pictures of the actual party and showed it to him, told him the story. And I got in my car, and I was leaving, and I got a phone call from my agent and said, he wants to do it. And I was, it was the most exciting day of my life, because I had been around being knocked down by everybody else and said, nobody wants to do this movie. And he said yes, and that was so exciting. You're, you smile, you light up now. Like yeah. you, you could tell what it meant oh, to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you do something so personal and people knock you down, and then somebody says, "Okay, we'll do it." I was friends with Margaret Cho at the time, oh, and I remember her doing it and talking about meeting Olivia Newton-John yeah. and how awesome it all was. And <laughs> right, Margaret. How? What came out of it once it came out and went out into the world? Did you ever hear from people that? Yeah, well, that you know. Were, Connected to it, and I don't so much, but but the two actors, Eric Roberts and um, uh, Gregory Harrison, always tell me stories that people come up to them and say, "Oh my God, that changed my life, and it was the best thing you ever did," and all that stuff. Because people really don't know who I am or what I've done because I I don't get out there much. <laughs> I I don't like to be in the public eye. I like to sort of stay in the background and yeah, do your thing yeah yeah to have some anonymity yeah you have to go places you know and do things like normal people yeah well when I posted that I was interviewing you I asked if anyone had any questions to ask you and my friend Alonzo uh, who's a big film lover said that there's a speech in Summer Lovers where Daryl T- Hannah talks about how she wants to be a mermaid oh yeah and then she ended up a few years later <laughs> making right. Splash That's did you right. ever make that connection well, in your head yeah sure but I mean it was it was just a coincidence Right. That was before Splash, yeah. But she, you sort of ma- helped her manifest her dream. <laughs> yes, I guess so. Yeah. It was ironic. Yes, you're right. <laughs> and uh, going back a little bit to It's My Party, you shot actually here in this house, right? Yes, yes we shot some of it in the house, and then we built a set for, for the uh, see, uh, the character Nick moves out of this house and uh, gets his own house, and we built a set for that so that we could control the light because I wanted it... I wanted the sun to be going down in real time during the movie. So we had every page was set with its, an angle of the sun. And we just lowered the big arc light uh, slowly so that it would, as you're watching the movie, it's, it's getting dimmer and the sun's going down. It's beautiful. Yeah. Cause I, I never knew arc light was an actual thing. I just thought it was the, the <laughs> well, place where I go to the really movies. It was arc light, but the arc yeah. light, it, it was a Fresnel lens type of, I forget the big, Big, there's names for them. I don't know what it's called. Right? And they've shot other stuff here, though. Like Scream 3 was shot Scream here? Scream 3, yes. Did somebody die grisly in a grisly way? No, but the house blew up. The house blew up? Yes, yes. I have it on my website, runyourranch.com. Yeah. You can click on it and see the house blow up. <laughs> I want to watch that. It's, was it weird to watch your house blow up? Did it, it look so convincing? Fun. Oh, yes. I went out to the valley. It was They, they had they built a, uh, a exact replica that was about 60 feet wide. With the pool built and the, all the furniture and, and the trees and, the, and even the hill behind here. It was a gigantic set and they had five different cameras and they all rolled, rolled them at the same time. And they had one one chance and they blew it up and uh, it was so cool to be there and see it. And then afterwards they said, did it work? Yeah, yeah, it worked. And they all clapped. And So you go there, there is a replica of your whole house, your yes. whole property, everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then they blow it up. Right. I don't know anyone that's probably had that same experience ever. <laughs> I hope not. No, no, it was surreal. Very Hollywood surreal. magic. Yeah. Right. Now you mentioned you live near Runyon. Yeah. Um, 
do you, the eye candy must be pretty good if you, if you, if you seek it out, if you well, just want to have do, a little walk around and. I walk my dog. Yeah. I used to jog all the time. Uh, it's a great place uh, to be near because, um, yeah, it's become like uh, such a social center around here. You know, it's like uh, uh, there was a website that wanted to rename Times Square and Runyon Canyon as the two uh, with their name. They wanted to put millions of dollars into doing it. It was a crazy... They wanted to brand it like the Staples Center? They did. They wanted to brand it. But it was so strange that they picked Runyon Canyon and and Times Square. I mean, what a... What a thing. (laughs) I lived here for years and years before I knew it existed. Well... I don't know what... I don't know where I was and somebody brought me here and I was like, this is right in the middle of the city and it's like being in the country or... Exactly. Being in the woods. It wasn't like this, you know. People weren't hiking here many, many, many years ago. It wasn't until 85 that it became a park, and, and now it's super, super. And a lot of the Hollywood actors and their dogs and the yeah, shirtless, and yeah, it's a lot. Uh-huh. you got to be primed for it emotionally. There's but a it's website called Overheard at, I mean, Facebook page, Overheard at Runyon Canyon, and it's all the quotes that you can Oh, my gosh. Lo- you would love it. I would love it. I'm sure it's crazy stuff. Yeah, because that's your scene. Right, yeah, <laughs> I like the, the commentary stuff. Now, your first feature film was Grease, right. of course. Mm-hmm. And it's, is it the most successful musical ever made? Because then I read something that Mamma Mia was, and I'm like, no, fuck you, Mamma Mia. It's Greece. <laughs> I, I, I'm told it was Greece. I, I, okay, we're going with it. Okay. We're going with it. The great thing about that is that the Hollywood Bowl sing-alongs. Man, that is so incredible. Because when I was in college, I used to go to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know? Yeah. And I never dreamed that I would have a movie that would play at the Hollywood Bowl and it, it, like a blown up version of Rocky Horror where people show up and dressed in costumes and sing along and know the lyrics and cheer after every song. 17,000 people. It's amazing. And they do it almost every year and you it's go? Fourth, fourth year, yeah. What do you wear? Uh, leather jacket. That's and, right. Yeah, you know, I dress like a... Like a, like a T-bird. Yeah. What's your favorite souvenir from Greece? Did you keep anything? Uh, uh, hmm... I don't think I have any souvenirs. No, just memories. Just memories. Memories. Um, What's one of your favorites? Favorite memories? Oh, I think it was um, the drive-in scene because that was so thrown together. And uh, it's so inspired with that um, concession stand commercial behind it and the timing of it. And when that thing lands on the thing, it's just like delicious. that That was done that night because. We had, uh, I, I sent our way to Chicago to some trailer place for like 10, uh, like interstitial videos. 10 choices. Choices. And that night the crew was there. I hadn't seen any of them. And that night we ran them all at the drive and the crew was just sitting around doing nothing. And I was looking at it for the first time. And then I saw that thing of the, the thing. I said, can you sync the, the end of the song to that? And I said, oh, I think we can. We just did it right there on the I spot. got chills <laughs> just hearing about that story. It's so crazy that, that it fell together that way, you know? That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when I see that movie and I revisit it every once in a while, what really jumps out at me lately is the casting. Every little part shines. George Everyone Hill. from the top, every little Eugene, Patty mm-hmm. Simcox, mm-hmm. Dodie Goodman, like everyone sparkles in their moment right. and um wh- what uh what would you attribute to that to did you spend a lot of time casting did... a lot of the people were were from the broadway show that right they had done the broadway show joel thurm was the casting director i'd worked with him he was the producer of boy in the plastic bubble and he worked on my he cast my my student film peas that got my career going 
And so he's really good. And then we wanted to pepper it with uh, those icons of the 50s that I grew up watching on TV, like Sid Caesar and, and uh, uh, Eve Arden, uh, you know, all these people that I had seen as a kid growing up. So it was, we just came up with all these crazy ideas and then we got them, you know, because I guess they weren't real busy. Did you know when you were making it that it was going to work? Because I think... Anytime, especially with film, you, you hope and all that stuff, but you just never know how things are going to be received. Never knew. No, and, and there's a, I, I tell the story over and over again about this, this, the attitude of the studio. Robert Stigwood Pictures had uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band shooting at the same time, and they thought that was a big hit. Right. And they had, uh, their rap party had amounts of caviar and champagne, and, and we had hot dogs and hamburgers. They sort of shuffled us off to Buffalo. They didn't leave. They, they didn't. The studio didn't pay much attention to us and didn't didn't tell us how to do it. You know. They, so they sort of left you alone. In a way, it was a blessing. Yeah, it was. It was. They were so concentrated on this other movie, and, and you know. So it's your first feature film. How do you get that job? John Travolta wanted me because I directed him in Boy in the Plastic Bubble, and I had done a TV movie for Robert Stigwood, so I was the only person they had both worked with. Right. Yeah, so that's how it came back. So you didn't have to go in and say, here's how I see it, here's no, my storyboards, no, just, PowerPoint, presentation, no, whatever the version of it, then no. I was first asked to do Saturday Night Fever, and then they switched me over to Greece. All right. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. What's the most random thing that came out of having directed Greece? You, you know, did you ever get invited somewhere crazy or... Oh, yeah. Well, I think the, the, the London premiere was the most crazy thing because... It was a riot, a complete riot um, in Leicester Square because John had been, just come out of Saturday Night Fever. He was a huge star, and it was at the height of the hype. And um, we were in this car, and they were rocking. The crowd was rocking the car back and forth, and John was like freaked out, and I was smiling and laughing because like, I can't believe this. Right. <laughs> and then we got out, and there's these bobbies. You know, the, they're the. They're the Policemen. The London cops. And they, they had locked arms. The, all the bobbies had locked arms and facing each other. And we had to squirm through them as the crowd was pushing everyone around like that. And uh, Travolta was just, <laughs> and I was going, <laughs> wow. And we, we, we got in. He was like shaking afterwards because people were trying to grab his hair and all this stuff. Of it course. Was, was, like he blew up. Overnight. It felt like overnight, even as I remember it kind of as a kid, but yeah. But that, that kind of excitement, I mean, to be in the middle of that was such a trip, you know, it was like very surreal. Like Saturday Night Fever and Grease are two of my favorite movies. I think they're so fun and sexy. Yeah. That must have been a really sexy time to be in that world, in Hollywood, before mm. AIDS. Mm. I bet it was just, yeah. I mean, maybe I romanticize the 70s, but no, like, I think, you're I, right. I think it was sexy. You'd be like, yeah. And there was Studio 54. Yes. And, uh, you know, all the craziness going on. Yeah. Do you have any memories of that or well, any we specific nights? We had our premiere uh, at Studio 54 in New York. That was a trip. I mean, I think Liza Minnelli and Andy Warhol and all these people were there. It was like, that's another surreal moment. You know? Yeah. And Alan Carr had brought in all these 50s cars inside, the, uh, inside Studio 54. Yeah, those were that days. <laughs> what was it like? Was, were people out back then, or directors out, or what, um, what do you remember the vibe of that being? Or what, were people just doing their thing and well, it know, wasn't really talked about? Alan was so out. That, of course, that uh, you know, every everyone around him was in his shadow. You know, you right? Know, no, one, no one cared. Exactly. He, he, no one could compete with was, that. He was like there was this cap dance of being crazy and having all these 
shirtless boys running around. So right, you know, nobody even looked at, at anyone else. Right, and, and certainly I was at at that time. Not Alan was really taking the spotlight, and right? So you know, I was shuffled off to Buffalo in terms of publicity. I never, right. I never did any interviews. I didn't. Uh, no one knew who I was. I was just sort of like it was all Alan's. Show. Even after the movie blew up, yeah. I mean, that those days there weren't all these Entertainment Tonight and there weren't right. all this stuff. I mean, no, there wasn't much. I, I, I was still Alan had just focused at all on himself and Alan Carr production and he was on all the talk shows and you know doing all that so I read some I think it was Paul Rudnick's book he's a he's a gay writer he wrote yeah, Jeffrey and stuff sure. and he tells a story about doing some development for Alan Carr but I just remember it was just bizarre. somebody needs to make a movie about Alan Carr well, there's a book called Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll that's about Alan oh okay yeah. great yeah, so yeah get the rights to that what's your craziest Alan Carr memory uh well he had a party to introduce his um, his uh, new kidney, <laughs> he had a kidney transplant. That might have to be the title of this podcast. I always pull one quote from each interview that's just like that makes people go, "What?" And that might be it. Yeah. Okay. He, he had a party. He had a kidney transplant, and so he named his kidney Poopsie. And he had a party to introduce Poopsie to his friends. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you, what do you bring? Do you bring a gift? What do you? How do you dress? I don't. Yeah. Ann Miller was there. Yeah. <laughs> it was oh very campy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and Valerie Perrine and you know a very bizarre group of people were all yeah. Alan's friends. Right? That's amazing. And you made the Blue Lagoon. And on behalf of gay men my age, I want to thank you for Christopher Atkins from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. He was that guy for a lot of us, you I know. know. I hear that all the time. People yeah. Say, That's the movie that I knew I was gay when I saw that film. Yeah, people say that a lot. All the time, yeah. Yeah. Where were you making that movie? You were somewhere beautiful. You were in Fiji. Wow. And I flew all over the, you know, Australia and New Zealand and uh, Hawaii and, and finally found, actually... We went to the very same beach that the first movie was shot at. The, there was, the original. The movie was with Gene Simmons. There's a movie called The Blue Lagoon, and we went to that beach and shot at the same beach, just for good luck. I remember how provocative the idea of it was and the commercials and stuff. I don't feel like a movie like that could get made today. No, Am I crazy? definitely not. Definitely not. Never, right? You can't do it, no. And yet... In some ways, our cu- culture is more permissive than ever with sexuality and things like that. But you couldn't. Think, really? Well, just in terms of the internet and stuff oh, is yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily on television or movies, but yeah. What was that? I said you don't have to try. Yeah, yeah. the internet. You can get to porn so easily. Right. We have, you had to go searching and find just a still picture and go. <gasps> exactly. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you saw a good dirty magazine? Because those remember you would like find them in your yard or whatever. That was amazing. It was black and white. Uh, Photos. I, I, yeah. I remember. What about you? What did you remember? What's the first time you saw a dirty well, magazine? I mean, one of the, a magazine, I don't know, but one of the things was Blue Lagoon for me because oh, really? I, was, I was going through, you know, puberty, puberty at the time. At that yeah. Time? So fun. I was, I was, uh, <laughs> what year was that? 1980? 1980. I was yeah. in seventh grade. <laughs> and then, of course, it started playing on cable all the time, so you get to watch so it over and over. People who were growing up could get do the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, studio executives tell me, they come up and say, oh, yeah, I. That was so important to me when I was going through adolescence. Both both sexes. I mean, right. People who like both sexes. That's kind of lovely. They're, they're running the studios now. I'd, I'd like for them to 
finance some of my films that I've got ready to go. Exactly, right? I got you through puberty. Let's, you know, pay it back a little bit, right? Yes. It's the least they can do. Karma. Yeah. You seem to um, gravitate a lot to stories about young people. Is there something about you you like working with them or is there something about that? Yeah. I mean, the the hopes and dreams that that young people have, the energy, you know, I have a lot of interns that work for me and they, they keep me educated really about all the technical stuff going on they're they're great they're they're digital natives and i'm a digital immigrant so i feel that i i they learn a lot of from me about you know old hollywood and and basics of directing and i learned everything from them about how you do things today and i know you're on a committee or something that to do with digital yeah the directors guild every year i, I host this uh, thing called digital day where I, I go around all year round and find the most the new things that are coming out everywhere and then put them all together in one jam-packed day for right. other directors. So, so you still appreciate, you know, those people that are like, I'll never not shoot on film uh, and da-da-da-da. No, yeah. No, that's not me. That's not me. You're like, you... you. I am fascinated by the Oculus Rift. Have you seen that? No, I don't even know what that it's is. It's thing where you wear these, this head mount and then you look, you're in another world and it's 3D and you can look anywhere you want. And it's the future of cinema. It's like Natalie Wood and Brainstorm. That's wow. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Facebook bought the technology. For oh, great. Because they need more money. Two billion dollars yeah. they paid for it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of interesting technological things, I read something about you helped the government mm-hmm. develop an IED test simulator. Yes. yes, it's for soldiers going to Afghanistan and it's... Um, designed to put a soldier through the explosion in a Humvee so that if it happens to him, he doesn't freak out and he can function. Because what they were finding was the guys who were in these Humvees that blew up that didn't die, if, they, if their buddy's leg was f- cut off, they would just freak out and not help him. Or they would stumble out and be hit by snipers because they were just so shell-shocked. And so by, by creating this uh, full-scale Humvee with movie screens around it and a motion base underneath it, and all kinds of special effects, so that when when the explosion goes off, they're they're jolted and the, and the loud noise and smoke, and and then we have this like their ears are all fucked up, and uh, it's really helped them a lot. You know, the- how do you get that gig? <laughs> like it just seems. That's let's true. get the guy that did Grease in the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> no, no. Actually, it was it was because I did Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Oh, right, which was very technologically. It was, yeah, it's 4D. They call it. Yeah, and, you know, you're in the theater and the theater's shaking and there's little things you know, tickling your feet and water spraying on you. And, and that was and a Disney it attraction. Was a park. Yeah, yeah they it, had them all. It ran for a long, long time. Yeah, for a decade in all the parks. So. Yeah. They, they saw that and said, oh, this guy can do things that's where you experience it rather than just watch it. So when it was finally up and working, would you go and watch the soldiers do it? it were you around fun. for it? Yes. Oh, it was exciting. And they were, it's like they're going on Space Mountain, but the most terrifying, yes. uh, traumatizing yes, version right. of it. I think it would do well in the theme park, actually. I think kids would love to get blown up. Well, you know what? It might give a, a perspective on what our mm-hmm. soldiers are going through, Absolutely. what they're risking for us. The first time we did it, a, a congressman came the first time we tried it out and uh when when he came out he had blood on his on his shoulder he he had he had been jolted so much that he had hit some piece of metal and and uh it was bleeding i think that's good he was a republican yeah next time he votes for something he'll remember his shoulder that's amazing where where was was it in dc where would you do it out here we had the valley we had it set up for that's so interesting it's cool yeah yeah 
I like to ask directors this because I've directed a couple of short films and a few, a handful, and I've kind of fallen in love with my actors sometimes. Like mm. when I'm directing them and when I'm editing them, and it feel it's almost like oh, yeah. an infatuation. Mm-hmm. And it's all sometimes it's I I don't cross the line or get weird. Well, maybe I do, but <laughs> it's like a real thing. And I'm like, is this nor- does this happen? Yes, it should happen. If you want to, if you want to really do a good movie, you should be in love with your actors and try to make them look as best they can. Every time I look through a lens and I'm setting up a shot, if there's anything that doesn't look right, I'll fix it because I want them to shine and look sexy and good as best they can. Right. What's your favorite part of the filmmaking process? I think the favorite part is editing because that's when every move you make really uh, moves it up a notch. It's so easy to make things better when you're editing. It's so hard to make it better when you're writing or when you're directing. Right. There's so many things that can go wrong when you're directing. Uh, it's wow. That's the hardest part. But the editing is great. Yeah, you get to try different things. You get to. Yeah. S- I like in my limited experience. Like, okay, we have a problem here. What? How can we solve it? Oh, what if the music did this? Or yeah. there's all these tools that you have well, that sometimes work. Well, I'm working on a project with Greg right now, which is a documentary uh, on um, my senior class in high school. Right. Called Fifty Yearbook, and it's I've filmed my class every ten years in the same position as their yearbook photo. Oh my goodness! And we're cutting that together now, and Greg is helping with the music. And you have a you have a scene that's just sort of sitting there, and then you put this music under it, and suddenly it's all emotional, and it's it's, it's exciting. How many years have you been doing it? Forty. Wow. Well, fifty, right? Because it's fifty years. Well, I wasn't doing the documentary though at the beginning. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I was editor of the yearbook in '64, so that was kind of the beginning of it. And then '84, I did the first thing. Then '94. Then 2014, so I didn't do it every year. But when are you going to let the world see it? We're working on it right now. So you feel like this, oh, yeah, this it's is getting yeah close. I mean, it's it'll it's, be. A, it's like boyhood for high school yeah, classes. That's right. How interesting! Yeah, how cool. how many of them are still alive? Uh, most of them. Uh, we, we've we, I had like 25 people. I did them. We yeah. had some test screenings, and we, we, we found that it works better if we get it down to maybe five or ten. Yeah. So that you can really tell the stories rather than just, you know... Right, to cover everybody. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're cutting people out. And, and yeah. It's so interesting to see all the different points of view, how people change over the years. Like, yeah. Oh, I love my wife. Oh, she's such a bitch. Oh, you know. <laughs> like, ever, just like they start out innocent or they start right. out this way and things didn't work out the way they could or they worked out better. Or, I noticed going to my high school reunions that, like, at the 10-year reunion, everyone was still kind of in their clique and they're trying to impress each yeah. other. And then, like, 20 and 25... They've all been through so much crap. Mm-hmm. They're just happy to be there and yeah. see each other. And they're not putting on airs anymore. Is I that sort of what too. you've observed? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, uh, the bond that you formed in the high school, uh, as you get older, it's stronger. Because it, when you go through adolescence, you know, that's it. I mean, that's where everything's changing. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're becoming who you are. And you're struggling. And you're with all these other people who are going through the same thing. So it really is a tight bond. Right. In high school, it feels like you're defined by what other people think of you. Oh, that's the jock. That's the thing or whatever. And then it's only later that you sort of get to define yourself. Yeah. Um, what were you like in high school? Were you popular? Uh, no, I was sort of a nerd, uh, kind of always making films. And, and at that time, nobody was making films. No one. I, had, I was making eight millimeter films. <clears throat> and they just thought of me as a little crazy. Of course, today, 
everyone with an iPhone is a director. And right. And they're making films that are being seen all over the world on YouTube. So it's just so crazy, the, the difference between them. And but at the time, you were a, a unique yeah, I was, creature. I was like, you know, kind of a freak. Yeah. Now, Greg, before you met Randall, which of his works probably resonated the most for you or that do you remember the most? You talked a little about The Blue Lagoon. Well, I would say The Blue Lagoon was number one. Yeah. And The Plastic Bubble was another one. Yeah. The, 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 those two because they're very intimate. Yeah. And it seems like they don't really make TV movies anymore. No. Like not. movies like that that everyone remembers those movies of the week. Right. What was that bubble like to work with? Was it... Like, would it reflect in the camera? Was it a problem? Oh, uh, you mean the actual the thing I did? Um, yeah, the actual yeah, when you were um, shooting Boy in the Plastic you know Bubble. What? I don't think it did. I mean, they have ways of lighting that, so yeah. it was fine. But what's interesting, we had Buzz Aldrin come, and he was he was a, uh, a cameo in it. So oh wow! Soon after he walked on the moon, I guess a few. It wasn't that long since he walked on the moon. It was right. so exciting to have him be in the movie. And uh, Ralph Bellamy was in it too, and he was such a pro, you know. Uh, he, you know, when you're doing a movie, you have a partner, like, he was playing a scene with Travolta, and uh, Travolta was walking all around, talking to him, and he was following him and everything, and then when, when we got to do Ralph Bellamy's close-up, we couldn't, we had to put a whiteboard right there, and, and he couldn't see Travolta, so he was able to, he was so professional, he, he remembered where he was, and he played the whole scene like he was following him, walking around, so I was amazed at how his professionalism those are those old guys from the uh, from the from the forties, the forties movies that really were knew the knew the technical craft yeah, of it. Classically <laughs> trained. I mean, not classically trained, but, but technically trained. So good. You know? When I think about the history of film, there are so many classics that were so great, mm -hmm. and it was a relatively new art form, and yet people did it really well. Yeah, like it wasn't like they got better and better as they learned. They somehow knew. Or maybe we only know about the good ones, and there's a million crappy ones back there. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it, the film, the form hadn't been around very long, the, yeah. the art form, yeah, and yet people old. knew how to do it brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. I got to meet some of those great old directors like George Cukor and Robert Wise and George, I don't know, George Cukor, Robert Wise, Ruben Mimali, and I got to meet them all when I was in film school, which is yeah. cool. John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, wow. And the thing that launched you was a short film you made in film school. That's right. And it was called, it had a really, Peach, right? Peach, that was my grandmother's name. And I made a film about my family going to visit her when she was in a nursing home and trying to talk to her and nothing got through because she was blind and, and, and uh, senile. And then uh, trying to talk, talk, talk to her, get her to remember things. The family all leaves and at the end of the movie she's alone and she smiles. So you know that she something got through and they, they used that film to train nurses and, and for years. You know, it became a very popular movie and was uh, entered into the uh, National Archives as one of the 25 movies of the year. You know, they pick like 25 features every year. To put wow. In the archives. Can people see it anywhere? Hmm. I think by doing a search for Peeg, you might be able to. P-E-E-G-E. -E. Yeah, yeah. But it... it got the attention of Hollywood and got you jobs. That's right. And that's amazing when that happens from a great uh, student film. Yeah, my first job was Marcus Welby, MD. Why? Did you, were your classmates, like, <laughs> resentful or jealous? Was it, did it cause any... I don't remember that. No, yeah. Because I was out. I was, I was a graduate student. So okay, cool. I, I didn't... No, 
And plus, some of my classmates were George Lucas and, and John Milius. They were all... They were doing all right. They were doing all right. So it wasn't like I was some superstar. Right. I was doing a TV show, you know, a, a five-year-old TV show. Right. So it's not a big deal. All right. Well, before we started this, we've got some questions from the observation deck mm. that I thought might be fun for you. So if you want to pick one of these, and uh, I'll uh, let me know which one, and I'll read it, and okay. you can answer it. Let me just think a second. Was it? Oh, I can't think of that. What's the coolest place you've ever been? Oh, well. The, What's uh, the question? That one, that one. What's the coolest place you've ever gotten to go for work? I think that London was so amazing when I did um, Getting It Right, because I got to work with uh, John Gielgud and Helena Bonham Carter and Linda Redgrave. <laughs> Now, that, it's not even just like shooting a movie in London. It's like you're right in the family. Like you're practically shooting at Buckingham Palace. It the- was amazing because it was a novel that I found. And uh, I, I, I raised the money to, to get the script done. And I raised the money to shoot it. And I went over there. Because uh, I wanted to make a movie that, like the films I'd seen in, in film school. With all the 60s movies about misfits in London. Like. Morgan, Alfie, Darling, there's a whole bunch of them. And, I, and this book reminded me of it. I wanted to shoot in the style of that with these great actors. And it was, it was just the coolest uh, experience. You know? And you lived there. You were immersed mm-hmm. in it. Oh, and yeah. what, was the, what was something you did off the set that was like, I can't believe I'm having this British experience? <laughs> well, um, hanging out with the, with the writer, Elizabeth Jane Howard, was was really great. She had a place out in the country that was just like magical, you know, by a stream, like exactly as you would imagine, like the English countryside, the perfect thing. And, and just being around her, she was so smart and funny. And, you know, I, I was very drawn to her as a sort of mentor type lady. She reminded me very much of Nina Fage, my other older lady friend that I right. Had learned a lot from and so i think that was it doing that mm-hmm. all right are there any other of these that, that grab you mm-hmm. what movie have you seen oh that one what movie have you seen more than any other movie the ten commandments that's so interesting <laughs> why the ten commandments well i was 10 years old I right wanted, i wanted to be a puppeteer or a magician or a, uh what else a puppeteer or a magician or an or cartoonist that right one. And when I saw the opening of the Red Sea, I thought, wow, you can do them all if you become a movie director. And so I started making films. And uh, there's just something about that movie that the theatricality of it for a 10-year-old. You know, right. Uh, with uh, Cecil B. DeMille came out at the beginning and he talked to the audience and said, uh, the movie you're about, this is an unusual way to start a movie, but, uh, you know, uh, this is a wonderful story. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a director. He's, he's the guy who made this. And so I was... You were able to put it all together. Like, it wasn't a a kid's movie that a 10-year-old... It's not a Disney movie. No, no, no. No. And then this thing started unreal. Not unreal. Started to show. (laughs) And uh, just the music and the colors, the costumes, the production design was so over-the-top and theatrical. And, and, you know... uh, (laughs) Edward G. Robinson was like... Right. and, And Vincent Price, they were like... Bigger than life. And Do you remember seeing it in the theater or on television? Yes, oh, in the theater. Right. Yeah. And I was just dazzled by this giant movie with, with thousands of extras and special effects, things opening and, and the way it was set up, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, 10 times and all these, right. <laughs> these great lines that they'd say and, and you know, uh, 
Vincent Price chewing up the scenery, Edward J. Robinson. But when as a kid, it doesn't look like chewing up the scenery. It looks it's like, amazing. Wow, it's larger yeah, than life. Yeah, Did you yeah. say, can we go see it again? Oh, yeah, Did, I yeah. Saw it many times. Yeah. Many now, times. Greg, what movie have you seen more than any other movie? Wow. Probably The Sound of Music. Yeah. That was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. Really? Yeah. When I watch it as an adult, I'm obsessed with the Baroness. <laughs> because she must have been so pissed. Oh, I didn't know you played. I would have brought my harmonica. Yeah, just fucking Julie Andrews can do everything. She's over there doing puppet shows. She must have been so mm. mad. Like, oh, that fucking nun is ruining everything. And I also remember being really scared when they were hiding from the Nazis as a boy. Like, freaking out in the cemetery. So you remember that? Yeah. Of course, yeah. 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 Wolf, you'll never be one of those. Yeah. You like this one? Yeah. Okay. What rookie mistakes did you make on your first jobs? I was uh, doing Marcus Welby. Okay. And I was on the soundstage at Universal Studios. It was I was 27 and looked younger. I was surrounded by a crew of, of 40 union guys. Right. And I was really nervous. And I knew that I had to yell out, out loud in front of all of them, action, and cut. Right. I was shooting a close-up of Alina Verdugo, who was the, playing the, the nurse. <clears throat> and so I accidentally combined them, and I yelled, CUNT! <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. That's the best. I can't. I did not see where that was going. What happened? Well, she she, she uh, said, I've never been so insulted. In my she started just going out off on me as a joke. But I was turned purple and the crew was all laughing. They must have and, thought it was hilarious. Yeah, I just wanted to shrink down. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you ever tell that story to, like, film students? Or, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just so yes. to kind of, I mean. Yeah. That's that's a doozy. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. Um, what else do we have here? Any of these you want to take on? Um, this is interesting, I think. What would you like to do in a job? That you, oh. What would you like to do in a job that you haven't gotten to do yet? Or a type of project, a type of movie? You know, I've always wanted to do a play. And I'm yeah. about to do the, the Penis Chronicles at the Coast Theater. So right? Full circle <laughs> moment. Do people see penis in it, by the way? Or is that... Uh, well, that's a surprise. That's a surprise. We'll find out. Okay. Uh, everyone will go thinking, and they, maybe they're or may not. Maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe Or maybe it's one of those things where <laughs> you think you saw it, but yes. maybe you didn't even see it because it's so in your head. It's all maybe. Yeah. So yeah. that was what you always wanted to do. Well, uh, I've, I thought that it would always be fun, and I just never knew when the time would be right. You know? Yeah. And it all came together. Yeah. I like that. Um, one last question. You've gone through ups and downs in your careers, like everyone else in show business. What got you through the tougher times? Well, um, I love to develop projects that I hope to do one day, and I have a lot of hope. Yeah. So by now, I have like uh, <laughs> I have about eight of them ready to go. So the great part is, you know, if you want a thriller, I got a thriller. You need a comedy, I got a comedy. You know, I've got them all set up, and I've spent time really developing them and getting them ready. So I'm ready for anything. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Again, the play is The Penis Chronicles. Yeah. It's showing at the Coast Playhouse. It opens when? November 8th till December 14th. Through 14th. December 14th. Perfect. The previews are on the 6th and 7th. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And people can learn more at the Penis Chronicles. Penis Chronicles.net. 
Excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you so much for your Dennis, time. You're a great interviewer. Thank I, you. I, I really you enjoy great. it. I, I really you. love doing it. I love talking to people. I love getting them to say cunt if I can manage it. <laughs> you turned out to be really easy in that way. Um, and it was very nice meeting you as well, Greg. Best of luck with the production, and I uh, can't wait to see it. Good. All right. Bye. But wait, there's more. After I finished the original long interview with Randall, I was leaving his office, and I saw this Barbie doll of Chacha Di Gregorio from Greece. And Chacha was played by an actress named Annette Charles. And I knew her as Annette Cardona. Sadly, she's no longer with us. Uh, but she was my first dance teacher when I came to L.A. And she really had a huge impact on my life. And um, I talk about that a little bit with Randall on my um, voice memo on my phone. So I'm going to add that on right now. And this will be a little coda. And then I'll wrap things up. So listen up. So I never told you this. One of my biggest influences in my career was Annette Cardona, who played Chacha Di Gregorio in mm. Greece. Wow. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I took a musical theater workshop at the Music Center. It was like 12 weeks, really intense, every night, like fame, and they would tell you horrible things about yourself. It was like one of those things. But she taught the movement classes and the dance classes. Wow. And then after that, I would take different classes from her. And she was so tough and strong and fierce and amazing. And I grew so much as a dancer under her that, you know, six or eight months later, I was able to audition for Princess Cruises and I got a gig. Oh. I got my first professional job as a dancer in show business, really, on, on a cruise line because <laughs> of Annette Cardona. And I think she was Annette Charles when you worked with her. Yes, yes. I loved her so much. She was the smartest member of the cast and most trippy one. I mean, I just loved her. And I, I, I would take her to events uh, years ago. I mean, recently before she died. And I went to the hospital to see her. She, it was really, really sad because she, she died of lung cancer but never smoked. Oh, she was the healthiest person I yeah. knew. You know, she was so healthy and yeah. strong. And, so wrong. And it branched out into doing different, like, social work type oh, stuff. Yeah. She, and was, she was transgendered people. She would uh, help them. You know, that was one of the things she did. She was working with transgendered people. Yeah, and nobody could start a race at Thunder Road <laughs> like Chancha with that scarf. Yeah. So, well, that was like Natalie Wood in um, uh, Rebel Without a Scarf. Yeah, Christ. of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for letting me give All my right. little shout out to right. Annette Cardona. Uh, and I'm glad that you loved her as much as, you know, Absolutely. you had such a, a, a fond uh, relationship yeah. with her. I'm going to take a picture of that doll. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Randall Kleiser and Greg O'Connor. Go see The Penis Chronicles. It's showing at the Coast Playhouse. And tickets are available online at plays411.com slash penischronicles. Or you can call 323-960-7787. That's it for this week. Go to dennisanyone.net and do all kinds of fun stuff there. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.